Hello and welcome to The Price of Everything, a podcast that aims to shine a light on pricing. The cost of commodities, that's energy, food and so on, is such an important part of our lives. But how are those prices actually calculated? Why do they move up and down quite so much? And what's next? The Price of Everything is the first podcast dedicated purely to how pricing works. My name is Neil Bradford and I'm the founder and CEO of General Index, which is the world's first technology-led benchmark provider. Together with my colleagues from around the world and some special guests, we'll be taking you through how some of the world's most important commodities come to be priced and what the future looks like for them in the age of climate change and the energy transition. Dated Brent is the world's most widely recognized price for crude oil. But why Brent? How did an oil field off the coast of Scotland become so pivotal in global oil pricing? My colleague David Elwood explores the history. Thanks, Neil. I've been speaking to Dr. Adi Mshurevich uh, and Sagay Vemprala about the future of Brent. Um, if you've not already listened to the first part of this episode, probably best to go check that one out first. Uh, you'll find a link in the show notes. Well, we're in the final stretch. We've done a couple of episodes now, and we're on the landing path to to uh, to the, the the climax of of our story. Um, Adi, before we left off, you were talking us through the different options that had been proposed, the sort of second time round, really, um, after initial proposals to to reform Brent um, hadn't gone down very well. Um, so tell us um, this year. Platts came back with a new plan. Uh, what was it um, and how did they uh, find consensus with the industry? Okay, <clears throat> well, just to recoup what we said uh, last time, it seems that most of the industry went with this uh, inclusion of uh, WTR Midland rather than uh, inclusion of Johannes Werder for two reasons. One reason is quality, second reason is sort of market concentration. So the only other option, I think the other thing that I said last time was that the whole industry had a big problem uh, in that any solution had to be done within uh, a framework of constraints. And the main constraint is that all the legacy contracts remain unchanged or reasonably unchanged in terms of value. So <clears throat> the, the latest proposal, again, always happens at APEC. Uh, at uh, IP week, sorry, February, um, when everyone gets together in London, was, well, you know, we are including uh, WTI Midland, and now I'm just trying to make it as simple as possible. Uh, we are going ahead with Midlands, uh, with WTI Midland in the Brent contract, but what we are going to do is we are going to use our um, very um, liquid and very good, I think most of the PRAs have very good uh, freight uh, assessments these days anyway. So it's a very sort of transparent market. So using these assessments to net back the values to FOB. So then we'll have dated Brent and cash Brent will be FOB again based. There'll be no change to all the legacy outstanding contracts. Uh, and we, we everything will be hunky-dory, except that we'll have a lot more volume in terms of WTI Midland. Uh, of course, <clears throat> the, um, the since then, there was a, another a, a announcement that 
there is still some outstanding issues regarding the forward or cash cargo. I prefer to call it forward. Cash sometimes can be a little bit misleading, although it's not commonly used. Um, uh, data Brent is the easiest one for your listeners to understand. Basically, you take, a, let's say, WTI Midland Cargo, which is on offer in, in Rotterdam. You assess the value of that cargo. It's, let's say, dated whatever, even or dated plus 50 cents a barrel. You look at that dated curve and you actually decide what sort of fixed price value that is in relation to all the other BFOET cargos. You take, if, if that is the cheapest cargo, then you say, okay, um, in fact, sorry, I missed one step. Before you do that, you have to net it back the freight as if it was loaded in the North Sea. Okay, so essentially you take the, the five, freight rates, North Sea freight rates for the five grades in the BFOET contract, you average them out, and then you apply to WTI. And now you have WTI contract, Midland, as if it loaded in the North Sea. And then you simply take the cheapest one, and it's pretty straightforward. Uh, there's a lot of liquidity, and then that's, that's, um, that's not uh, a problem at all. The problem that appeared with, uh, was on the cash side. Cash is a little bit problematic for, for the following reasons. Um, some big players such as um, Shell, they very often have their US entities sell WTI Midland and other grades to their UK entity, okay? They have to be very, very careful of their tax exposure between the two entity. Of course, even though FOB and CIF contracts are the title passes um, at the load port for both, both. It seems that the legal advice for a lot of companies out there is that it's a lot easier to justify if it's done on delivered basis. So <clears throat> the outstanding issue was originally when Platts made the announcement, well, we still have to sort out the cash and see these GTNCs. Now, for your listeners, just to explain what GTNCs are, it stands for General Terms and Conditions. General terms of conditions is usually a contract which is written upfront and agreed by all the concerning parties trading to make it easier to trade. So when two traders talk to each other, they don't have to talk about all the details like payment terms, bank, playtime, demarrage. They can, if they want to, uh, amend those terms, but it's usually a deal is done based on those GTNCs, so I think they could focus on the key issues, which such as price, for example, and pricing. Normally, as you mentioned, I think in, in, in your previous uh, podcasts, the normal brand trades are done on Suco 1990 GTNCs. Uh, so you would just do a deal. I would buy from you a Brent at price of, I don't know, $90 a barrel based on Suco GTNCs, and that's it. We're done. Uh, no problem. Uh, the problem uh, in, in, in now with with um, WTI is that uh, Shell came with a proposal for the GTNCs, where their legal side uh, or legal advice was that they really shouldn't go back to the FOB contract. They had to be delivered contract, and reasons being tax, primarily. Uh, Kurt Chapman and I in our paper also also suggest um, that there was also precedent. There was. Uh, um, a court case in the United States where a federal judge um, announced basically that Brent is part of the sort of U.S. futures markets. Uh, it was settled out of court, 
And this is problematic when you have out of court settlements legally, it's never really settled. So, so is it really a part of, uh, of the US uh, sort of um, uh, futures trading um, uh, uh, system? Uh, obviously, it's not, but you know, and I'm, who am I to, to argue with a judge, federal judge? So, this is, this is problematic. And now, um, BP and uh, VTOL came out with their own proposals for general terms and conditions, which were actually on FOB basis. So clearly the situation has not been settled properly uh, within the industry. What is going to happen? Well, now that's very important. I think that the whole of the industry settles towards at least one aspect. Is it going to be delivered contract? Now, now this is very important, David. When I say delivered, we're not going on to delivered basis assessment. You can have a delivered contract, but assess it on the FOB value. But will it be CIF or not? Now, is that problematic? Well, as long as both BP, well, both key players are BP and Shell agree on one or the other, I think there's no problem. Uh, there may well be a bit of a a bit of a struggle to see which general terms and conditions we are going to use in future, but I don't think that's a big problem. And I'll tell you why. First of all, uh, Suco GTNCs are generally traded under uh, BP, with a BP amendments because BP, uh, the levied contract, is very often used in Northwest Europe for all sorts of trades. So it's not a, it's not necessarily a big issue. Secondly, I think in your previous show you said. Suco 1990. We all know that Brent started trading in the early 80s. So it was trading for a good decade before we got to the 1990 agreement on GTNC. So it is possible that the markets do function and can function with different GTNCs as long as eventually you agree um, what you're going to use. Now, just one technical point there. Um, I, I hope I don't lose some of your listeners, but you know, a lot of um, um, uh, PRA assessments are based on cash partials, which are basically partials of 100,000 barrels trading at a fixed price, and then they're made up for to full cargo. Now, <clears throat> the key is now if you have two counterparties trading to, to make it up to full cargo, at the end of the day, you do need one set of GTNCs. You can't have one cargo with two sets of GTNCs. But what, what Kurt and I have pointed out is, as sort of former traders uh, of 35 years each was, look, I think we, we are overthinking the problem. You know, Brent market grew over time. It evolved. And we have to let it evolve rather than say, no, no, we need to have everything decided now exactly how it's going to happen. It, it never has happened in the past, and I don't think it will happen now. So we envisage potentially as long as the market agrees on a sort of general principle how the GTC is uh, are going to be set up that you know something will evolve it will probably be some again suco with bp uh, amendments or some mixture of the two or or just one or the other so that's where we kind of stand right now so we still there is still uh, a quite a, a, a bit to do uh, and i i would expect you know, by February, by the IP week again, that there will be some announcement, I guess, on some sort of at least halfway house agreement uh, regarding where where the Brent um, is going. The, the core the core element of it that 
WTI, a US crude, will be added into the, the Brent basket, traditionally a, a North Sea-based uh, crude oil assessment. So US crudes coming in um, and on a FOB, i.e. a sort of a, a loaded uh, or, to, or to be loaded uh, basis with some key questions still outstanding, but doesn't look like it's going to fall apart here. I'm going, to, I'm going to move us on because we could, as we say, I mean, we will we'll include in the notes the the links to to Addy and to Kurt's papers because they go into this in a, in a lot more depth, um, and that would be good for our for our listeners if they want to do some more reading. Just want to touch on we kind of we've kind of alluded to this earlier. Obviously, there are there are different companies in the market who hold different assets and they have influence, and there will be winners and potentially losers from these proposals. Um, Sackett, who might the winners stand to be? Well, the companies I think that were very keen, or certainly among the companies that were very keen uh, to have US light sweet crude incorporated into the Brent basket uh, were those companies that had assets in the US market, holders of US export infrastructure, sellers of US light sweet crude, equity producers. Uh, of such crudes, uh, whose streams would be incorporated into the new uh, Brent benchmark, and therefore their, uh, the signals that they would transmit by offering such cargoes and selling such cargoes into the benchmark would then help to set a global benchmark that would then ricochet across the wider uh, crude market. And so we, you know, we know from uh, you know public statements that companies such as uh, you know, Trafigura and VTOL have uh, expressed support for the new uh, uh, proposals, the new structure that will take effect next year, and they have put forward suggestions for how this could work in, in practice, even though the early proposal to have um, loading programs made available from U.S. terminals may now be abandoned. Uh, we know that Trafigura put out a public uh, paper in which they explain how it may work in practice. Meanwhile, on the flip side of the coin, I think very much as, as Adi alluded to earlier, those companies that have equity production of the Johann Sverdrup grade, the other North Sea um, heavier and sourer barrel that was uh, considered for possible inclusion in the Brent basket, uh, will no doubt see this perhaps as uh, a little bit of a, uh, a setback, a little bit of a dilution of their influence upon the Brent benchmark, Equinor, of course, being the dominant producer, uh, Francis Total also has equity production of the Johan uh, Sverdrup grade. Um, and Equinor, of course, much like Adi said uh, a little bit earlier in the episode, uh, already has uh, significant stakes in uh, some of the other light sweet grades that are currently included um, in the basket. Uh, and therefore, if and when WTI, not if, but rather when WTI uh, Midland uh, enters the Brent uh, basket next year, based on uh, the pricing dynamics we've seen over the last few years, uh, if it does continue to typically uh, price at a discount to some of the more expensive uh, grades in the basket, then we could see some of the pricing power within the Brent basket shift away from the incumbent producers of the, the lighter, sweeter grades uh, you know, within the basket towards uh, the producers of the of the U.S. crude. Andy, would you like to add anything in this space? I mean, this is a this is a competitive area, right? We need to we need to remember that we're talking sort of abstractly here on the podcast, but this is competitive. It's commercial, and people do stand to gain or miss out. And 
um, there'll have been much intensive activity behind the scenes from the trading companies and uh, and others in different groups lobbying for their positions. Yeah, I mean, it's very hard to disagree with anything as I could mention that there will be some winners, some losers, obviously people with more assets in the United States with, with, with more extensive uh, trade links uh, with WTI Midland on top of the existing Brent uh, infrastructure will, 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 will benefit out of it. But it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fact that you have to go with a contract that makes more sense, uh, first of all. Uh, obviously, it would be ideal if there were no winners and no losers, losers but it is virtually impossible because oil market is not a perfect market. It's, uh, it's a market in which people trade with uh, one, one, one dollar is one vote. It's not, it's, not the, it's not a democratic system. Um, so big players always have a big sway uh, in the oil market. There's no doubt about it. And let's not, again, you, you know, David, you said you, you, you sort of both of us are students of history. You know, it's if you look at if you look at the Brent market in the early days, it was it was basically, you know, BP, Shells and Exxon's that were running the whole thing. They're policing the market. They were they were deciding on, on, on the general terms and conditions and the way the market would run. Um, sometimes also, um, I think my 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 friend um, uh, Kurt always has a good point uh, as a as, as an ex Mercurial trader. So like, well, you sometimes you need a bit of a. Um, a bit of a carrot for for some big players to you know to actually come in and make markets to get into the trouble of actually providing liquidity. And one of those carrots in the old days of Brent was Brent tolerance, for example. Uh, in the in the nineties, we had five percent tolerance, and then if you could create these chains, which is another really interesting, I would suggest your readers if they're interested to read a bit of history of that either through Marlboro Horsnell book or my book. Uh, obviously, the original is always better, which is uh, um, which which is something I read as a young trader. Um, the but later on, I got involved in that business as well. Basically, you try and and create your your brand chains in such a way that at least you don't lose on tolerance. But bigger players would always have bigger books, and they would actually have that carrot at the end of the day. And you know the 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 shells, fibros, uh, BPs of the old would 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 make a fair bit of money out of out of. Uh, simply uh, tolerance. And sometimes you need that carrot. It's not a massive, there's are not massive advantages and not massive profits, but sometimes you need that carrot for some bigger players actually to, 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 be, to get into the trouble of making markets and, and provide liquidity for these contracts. We, we're kind of generally accepting that the, the US market is the big winner out of these changes or and companies who are are, are active there um do we think that um are, are, are these proposals to add wti into brent are they uh are they just a stick in plaster until the benchmark shifts wholesale over to texas say as a as a fob basis u.s gulf coast um wti midland benchmark or um is the is is what's being proposed going to give a sort of an extend much much longer extended life to Brent? Well, it's 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 an excellent question, David. It's uh and and it's a very difficult one to answer. Now, again, I think history is the best thing we have. Uh, I don't know if m many of your listeners may not know, but in 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 mid eighties, 
when uh, due to a price crash, a lot of US producers got decimated. And actually the, the volume of WTI in the contract got ridiculously small. And actually there was a big question mark whether WTI would survive as a benchmark. And then NYMEX that run the contract uh, did a great thing. They actually had alternative delivery. So alternative delivery is not a new thing. They introduced Brent into WTI contract, not just Brent, but lots of other uh, grades. I remember when I was trading, we used to, we delivered a couple of times Bonnie Light into WTI contract, for example. So it's, is the sticking plaster? Well, now you look at WTI, yes, it's not a perfect contract, but it's, it's still alive and kicking. So uh, is this a, a plaster on Brent? I, I don't think so. I think these are just legitimate ways of increasing liquidity in an existing uh, a contract. Now we call it Brent just because we are familiar with the name, but obviously I think as of next year, there was actually some, there were some voices last year suggesting that we exclude Brent out of the Brent contract completely. Um, so the volume is so dire because we only have a couple of cargos a, a month at the moment. And very often, you know, you know, one slips or something happens. So, um, you know, it's, Kurt and I mentioned um, at the end of our, I think, first paper earlier this year that, look, it's it's down to the, the, the market to decide what they want to do. Yes, I think there's, it's very likely, especially now with the war in Ukraine, that WTI is going to be a dominant uh, grade in the, in the Brent basket. The question then begs, should we go back to um, just FOB Houston? Uh, and I think there are a number of PRAs and, and some exchanges that, that actually would love to see that. You know, these, you know, uh, having a benchmark is, is, is a very fickle thing. It's, it's something, it's not always something that makes sense, but it's always something that's liquid. Traders like liquidity, even, and if traders see more uh, basis risk, they can still sit, they will probably still uh, stick to more liquid contracts. So at the end of the day, it's just a matter of what traders decide to use more. And very often it's, 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 a, it's, it's a matter of first mover. And if you have an already liquid contract, even if it's uh, inferior to an alternative, it may go on for a very, very long time before you change to something that makes more sense. WTI um, Houston, still very young contracts, still pretty much trades as a differential to Cushing. And Cushing already, as, as you mentioned, uh, had a problem in 2020 when it went deeply negative. Uh, it has potential problem with the storage uh, uh, and so on. Unless we get purely, unless we get uh, pure trading on the basis of FOB Houston, it's not gonna happen. So it may well happen. It's a matter for the industry to decide. Adi, I guess one thing we haven't mentioned, I mentioned it at the very start, is that we're in an energy transition and many economies, many uh, governments are putting in policies to try and move away from oil. Um, do you see uh, a point where rent and oil benchmark stops being the kind of premier price reference and that maybe another non-oil energy market uh, takes its place or does brent have characteristics that would could prolong its life even further and be a good a good benchmark through the energy transition um david that's that's a million dollar question let me get my uh 
crystal ball out, uh, and, and, and I will, I'm quite happy to speculate a little bit, uh, which is obviously not, not easy because we, we live in very volatile times, as we said originally when we started our discussion. You know, the key for a benchmark is, 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 is good legal system supported by good policy. What really worries me now everywhere is an extreme involvement of governments in the markets. And that really scares me. Talks of price caps, whether it's on Russian crude or all the LNG imports into, into Europe, uh, I think they are not good ideas. I think they are going to lead to uh, knock-on effects, especially like price cap on gas, for example. I think if, if it happens, I hope it doesn't happen because I'm an end user. I think if, we, if, if that happens, we could see... Um, we could see uh, shortages of gas in Europe uh, because Europe is a price taker in international markets and, and you, you don't go to a supermarket and say, well, I want to buy all of this, but I can't pay more than this. Well, if you can't pay more than this, somebody else will because uh, Europe is a price taker, not a price maker. So they, you know, it doesn't make sense. Um, Brent market, I think, is going to stay there for quite some time uh, simply because I can see from everything I read and, and, and when I talk to people, willingness of, of some very big players to be there. Now, um, now you asked me two big questions. One is on, on Brent on its own as, as, as a marker and benchmark for crude, or now we're talking about all the alternatives, uh, uh, forms of energy. I, I think it's going to be around for a while as long as there's willingness to, to, to play and, and the market actually can find a consensus on how to do so. Whether the market moves on to something better, it's really, really hard to say at this stage. Um, uh, but if it does happen, it's probably not going to happen very, very quickly. In terms of other uh, forms of energy, we're clearly going through a transition where oil is going to, 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 to be less and less important in the energy transition. Of course, a lot of people dis uh, disagree with me, including the uh, OPEC Secretary General, uh, who said recently, well, we see OPEC demand growing into 20s, into end of uh, 2020s, and then probably um, tailing off. Well, if that happens, I, I think we've lost the, the fight to, to, to stop climate change, as simple as that. So I usually look at that situation backwards. Well, if, if that happens, uh, the price of oil is, some, is, is the least of our problems. So, <laughs> a, you know, the, the, the way I look at it, we certainly, LNG, we've seen huge growth in LNG and LNG benchmarks. Uh, so I think that that is going to continue. I am worried about government involvement with, with benchmarks such, such as TTF, because uh, I don't think the governments realize um, that price is just information. So when a benchmark gives us that price information, whether it's when it's very, very high, it means there's not enough supply and there's too much demand. It means something has to be done about it. TTF has been high because it's because of congestion. TPR, sorry, TTF. TTF, just for listeners, is a European gas price. Yes, it's it's a it's a hub for European gas price. So the congestion around that hub uh, is such that essentially, you know, what what TTF high price is telling us that we need some more pipelines and more infrastructure around it, and not change the the the, the, the benchmark. So killing a messenger is not a way to solve a problem. Um, 
So anyway, moving on, I think electricity market is, is a very good one. It's, it's, it's working very well. Again, we have a huge uh, amount of government intervention, especially in Spain and Portugal, again, which distorts uh, all these um, price signals. Let's just hope, David, that uh, that doesn't become a habit. Let's just hope that this energy transition proceeds in, a, in, in, a, in an orderly way with the market actually giving us signals rather than us changing uh, market prices just because they don't suit us. So that would be a recipe for disaster. But um, I'm optimistic and I, and, I, and I think that, you know, all these benchmarks and many, many other new benchmarks uh, are going to come and we will be able to use them uh, for many years in future. It's certainly a fascinating part of the market and one that many people, including ourselves, would be keeping a close eye on. Well, it would be remiss of me, I suppose, at the as we come to the very end of this series on, on Brent, um, not to get your final reflections um, on this as a benchmark. It's been, look, it's, it's, it's almost 40 years since the first forward Brent market was introduced by a senior trader at Shell in 1984. It's been 35 years since the first dated Brent price uh, assessment was published by Platts in 87 and 34 years, as we said a little earlier, since the Brent futures was established by the IPE. So we've had really on the, we've had four decades of relatively free international oil markets, uh, which were spawned in the wake of North Sea oil discoveries and, and trading proliferated around Brent. Has it provided fairer pricing to what came before? Absolutely, David. Um, uh, we live in the age of benchmarks, uh, and, and, and Brent is the, the, the key benchmark, one of the three key benchmarks, but by, by far, as we said in our previous uh, show, uh, probably the most important one. Um, what we had before that, well, we had a, a cartel that was setting prices, so uh, surely Cartel um, um, has a full right to protect the rights of its uh, own uh, members, but it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's for the rest of us to actually protect our, ourselves. And market is, is a place where sort of the supply and demand meet and where producers and consumers actually exchange their views and, and, and they trade. So even though since the introduction of benchmarks uh, somewhere in 87, sort of originally it happened with the Aramco partners actually decided not to lift Saudi oil any ever again unless unless you know that the, the Saudis allow this uh, market prices uh, and that's where we are roughly now um, so I think it's been good uh, I think it's not been perfect uh, it never has been never will be perfect as I said I think in the last show uh, you know oil market is, is is not a democracy it's where one dollar one vote work so bigger players will always have a sway in the oil markets whether we like it or not and I think from the policy perspective, it's it's for the governments to actually look at that side of things rather than the benchmarks, which benchmarks and prices are the wrong way, the wrong thing to change and the wrong way to go about it. If they if they want to reduce um, importance of some bigger companies on the price uh, mechanism, they should look at that first. But it's, it's been working remarkably well. And I think that the, the key test for Brent has been well, the two has been 2020, uh, the COVID pandemic and 2022 Russian invasion of Ukraine. And I think as a benchmark, it's, it's worked remarkably well. Uh, and, and I think the reason for that is the fact that it really evolved over time in a way that just made sense for the market participants rather than being created artificially. Adi Sake, 
Thank you so much. That was a, a really fascinating discussion. It was my pleasure. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you very much, David. For our series on Brent, that's a wrap. Thanks to our guests, Dr. Adiam Shurevich, Liz Bosley, Colin Bryce, John Kingston, Mark Quartermain, and Sakit Ramprala for helping guide us through some 160 years of oil pricing. Together, we've seen how the early years of oil trading around Oil Creek, Pennsylvania in the 1860s laid down practices such as the role of exchanges and forward contracts, which would survive into the modern day. Standard Oil's audacious power grab through its posted prices would ultimately fall foul of government intervention and regulation. But it would be far from the last corporate to accumulate and wield immense pricing power. As the oil market proliferated outside the US at the turn of the 20th century, the IOCs, the international oil companies, dictated pricing, only to later lose the role of pricing cartel heading into the second half of that century to the NOCs, the national oil companies, which had been incubated under colonial regimes. Soon, change would come again. The discovery of very fungible and accessible crude supply in the North Sea in the 1970s came at precisely the same time as favourable factors in the wider political and economic landscape to support more independent pricing. Free markets offered the swell of new independent oil companies the chance to seize pricing control from the NOCs, from OPEC, by supporting the price benchmarks being published by the PRAs, price reporting agencies, and using the associated hedging tools run by financial exchanges. Now, for the best part of 40 years, or a quarter of the oil trade in the modern era, Brent benchmarks have dominated the oil pricing landscape. They are now responsible for setting the price for over 70% of world exported oil. As we've learned, Brent is now a galaxy of prices, and on the physical side, it now exists largely as just a brand name. The physical Brent basket of crudes now number five different grades from the North Sea. But Brent's most daring reinvention yet to remain the king of benchmarks will happen later this year as it's set to incorporate US crude. So from Odyssey to Oddity, as one guest concluded, or during an era of benchmarks, unquestionably a fairer pricing tool to what came before. Feel free to offer your verdict on Brent Join in the conversation on Twitter and LinkedIn by using the hashtag GXPriceOfEverything. What's indisputable among all the posted prices, references and contracts, Brent has emerged as the one benchmark to rule them all. Until the next time, you've been listening to The Price of Everything, a new podcast from General Index. Goodbye. <laughs>